They didn't find Jesus. Jesus found them. God is the initiator of salvation. Open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We've been learning about Jesus Christ as superior. That's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews, to point out that Jesus Christ is superior uh, to the angels, to Moses, to the law, to the high priestly system, to everything. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. And so as we come to Hebrews chapter 3 this morning, we're going to be thinking about Jesus as superior to Moses in particular. Now the Jewish people held three individuals from their history in the highest esteem. First was Abraham. That makes sense. He was the father of the nation. It was a guy named Abram whom God called out of the city of Ur and promised to make him into a great nation. In fact, changed his name from Abram to Abraham and changed the name of his wife from Sarai to Sarah. And whenever God is changing somebody's name, that's pretty significant. He's going to be doing something new and different and amazing in their lives. The other person that they held in high esteem was King David. It was King David to whom God had made promises of an enduring kingdom. King David was the prototype of the Messiah. And it would be through the line of King David that the Messiah would eventually come. And of course, the third person that the Jewish people held in the highest esteem was Moses himself. Moses was the one whom God used to deliver the people out of bondage in Egypt. They had been there for 400 years as slaves. Generations had gone by. And God used Moses not only to be the deliverer, but then to be the law giver. It was Moses who went up onto Mount Sinai and received the words of the law from the very hand of God. And it was Moses who came down into the camp and his face shone with such incredible radiance that he had to wear a veil over it because he was reflecting the glory of Almighty God to such a degree. It was Moses who gave instructions for the construction of the tabernacle that would lead the people of Israel during their years in the wilderness that was the very place that represented God's presence among his people. It was Moses who basically functioned as a king, giving direction to the nation and leading them along. It was Moses who sort of served as a priest who anointed Aaron, the high priest, and installed him in office. Moses was a man whom God elevated to incredible places of responsibility and authority, in those early days of, Egypt, or of uh, Israel's coming out of Egypt and heading off to the promised land. So you can understand why for Jewish people both then and now who might be considering the claims of Jesus Christ, the question about the law of Moses, 
And the application of the law of Moses to everyday life would be of primary importance. You're talking about one of the three greatest men in Israel's history who represented God and did God's work. And now, should, should these things be set aside? Where does the law of Moses fit in to this new economy? Well, just as the writer of Hebrews wanted his readers to understand that Jesus is superior to the angels, so he wants them to understand that Jesus is superior to Moses as well. Look with me, please, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Keep in mind the recipients of this letter. It's written to Hebrews. It's written to Jewish people, to those who were considering the claims of Christ. Many of them had put their trust in Jesus, but not all, certainly. And they were thinking, who is this Jesus? And is he worthy of my trust? Is, is he worthy of obedience? Do I set aside my heritage and follow him. They were thinking about these things. You know, in a way, I think it's marvelous that they were considering this and thinking about this because this was of momentous importance. As we share the gospel with people, you, you need to realize and understand what we're asking of them, what God is asking. He's asking them to turn their whole life upside down. Their whole system of thinking, their whole values, everything. We've, we've been going one way, thinking that this is the way we ought to go. And Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he says, this is the way, walk in it. And we are all confronted with a decision, aren't we? Do I follow myself? Do I follow my own ideas? 
Do I do what I think is right in my eyes? Do I follow some tradition that's been handed down to me from my parents or my grandparents? Do I put my faith in them and what they did? Or do I consider the claims of Jesus Christ and make a decision to follow Him based on what He claims and what He promises and what He says? That's the decision that was faced by these Hebrew people to whom this letter is written. And that's really the decision that's faced by you and me today. We've grown up in a world, in families, we've grown up with certain philosophies of life, and we're called to consider those in light of Jesus and to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow him. Following Jesus is a whole lot more than just saying, oh God, you know, forgive me my sin. That's certainly part of it. We certainly confess to God that we have gone our own way, but we also don't keep going our own way. We follow Christ. We pursue Him. We listen to His Word and obey His voice. So this is a monumental thing for these people who received this letter. And the writer of, of this letter, which I believe is certainly attributable to the Holy Spirit, says this, Therefore, in light of all this, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. This is an interesting way of saying it here. They were partakers of that calling. I'm reminded of what God had done in the history of Israel. He called Abraham from Ur, and he said, You follow me. He extended that call to Isaac. He extended that same call to Jacob, or Israel, and his sons, the twelve patriarchs, from which the nation of Israel was born. They were partakers. They were heirs to the promise. But they didn't all enjoy the promise, did they? They didn't all enjoy the benefit of it. They were called by God, and they, in some cases, walked along and saw God at work and participated in the blessings and the benefits, but they themselves did not walk by faith. And so they lost out on the benefits. They lost out on the blessing that comes through faith. You and I are partakers of a heavenly calling. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, He, referring to God, the Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. When you put your faith, you put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, for the provision of eternal life, God conveys you, takes you from the kingdom of darkness and places you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
That's a transaction that you and I don't see. There's nothing visible to it. We understand it because the Bible reveals it to us and we accept that by faith. But we know it in our hearts, don't we? We know it in our inner soul. When we've come to Jesus Christ and confessed our sin and asked for His forgiveness and asked that we would be made a child of God, His Spirit comes to dwell within us and witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. And as children, then that transformation begins to take place in our life. Our salvation is not just about our future. Understand that. Our salvation has a very present tense, this world component to it. It is manifested in a changed life. A changed life. The way we were going before is not the way we're going now. The attitudes that we had before, the value system that we had before, the pursuits of life that we followed before, they're all changed. They're all different. Coming to know Jesus Christ as our Savior is not just an eternal change. It's a very present tense change in our lives now. It begins a new relationship that we walk day by day with Christ and day by day we grow in our relationship with Him. We grow in our understanding of His Word. We grow in obedience to that Word. We grow in our salvation. We learn, as Peter says, to work it out in everyday life. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not a not a simple thing to do. Sometimes it's a, a great struggle. And as we take up our cross day by day and follow Jesus, it really does sometimes feel like a dying as we turn our backs on the world and the old ways and the old ways of doing things and we turn our faces to Christ and we follow Him. There's a little bit of us that's still in sympathy with that old world. And we bring that under control of Jesus Christ and we move forward with Him. That's why it says, holy brethren. We're holy. We're set apart. We're sanctified. We're not the same as we were anymore. Now it's not an arrogance. It's not a holier-than-thou kind of a approach to life. But it's a recognition that because I've trusted in Christ as my Savior, because I am filled with the Spirit of God, because Jesus Christ is working in me, I am changing and I am becoming more like Him day by day. There is an increasing holiness, an increasing sanctification, increasing spiritual growth. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Holy brethren, you are partakers of that heavenly calling. It's a heavenly calling. It is both a calling to heaven and a calling from heaven. You understand, I hope, and Scripture makes it very clear that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none, according to Romans chapter 3, who seeks 
after God. Sometimes we'll hear people say, you know, well, yeah, I found Jesus. And I understand what they mean. They've come to that point in their life where they recognize who Jesus is and they, they've confessed their sin and they're trusting in Him for, for salvation in eternity and for everyday living here. I get that, but I have news for them. They didn't find Jesus. Jesus found them. God is the initiator of salvation. Who was it that went looking for whom in the Garden of Eden? When Adam sinned, did he suddenly go rushing to see where God was and say, Oh, God, I got, I got news. It's bad news. I, got, I blew it. Is that how it was? No. Adam and Eve were off hiding, and God went looking for them. And that's how it's always been. Did any human being ever go up to heaven and bring God down so that we could learn about Him? No. But God came down, didn't He? In the person of Jesus Christ. The Son of God left the splendor of heaven and came into this world so that as the Gospel of John says, He would be able to explain God to us. He became manifest in the flesh. And we beheld His glory, and He explained God to us. God is the one who does the seeking and the saving. You and I do the receiving. We are holy brethren. We've received a heavenly calling. It's from heaven, and it is to heaven. It is a calling to come out of this world. Now, we can't do that physically yet. You know, that happens when we die, or that will happen if we are alive when the Lord returns and He comes and takes us to be with Him. But we come out of this world now in that changed way of thinking, that changed motivation of life, those changed standards. All of that, we're coming out of the world. We're leaving behind all the things of the world, all those things that draw us away from Christ. And we are coming to Him because it is a heavenly calling. It is from heaven and to heaven and out from this world. Notice, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. What in the world does it mean to consider? When was the last time you really considered something? You know, maybe it was the purchase of a house. Maybe it was the purchase of a car. Maybe it was the change in a job position. Maybe you're in school now and you're considering what kind of career you want to pursue in life. When you have a momentous decision to make, you tend to consider it, don't you? You take it seriously. You realize that, you know what, I'm, I'm choosing a home and I'm going to live there probably the rest of my life or at least a long portion of my life and it's going to be a significant investment. And you stop and you think about it. Is this the home that I can live in? 
Is it in the right location? Is it in good condition? What will I have to do? How much do I have to pay to maybe get it fixed up the way I want it? You think about all of those things. We call those the considerations of home buying. When you're thinking about a career and you're a young person and you think, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And what skills do I have and what interests me and, and how much money might I be able to make if I follow this career as opposed to this career? And what are the opportunities? Maybe there's more opportunities over here than there are over here. And you consider those things. You weigh them out carefully. Beloved, have you and I ever given that much effort and energy to considering Jesus Christ? Have we ever really, I mean, worked hard to consider Jesus Christ? To cons I mean, yes, we say, oh yeah, He's the Son of God. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that implies for us? that we can have a personal, individual, eventually face-to-face -face relationship with the Creator of the universe. And since that is true, how does that affect the way I look at this world? How does that affect the way I act in this world? How does that affect the way I purchase a house or purchase a car or choose a career how does that consideration of Jesus affect my everyday living have we ever stopped to consider those things beloved the greatest consideration that you will ever have in your life is Jesus Christ who He is, and what He has done, and what He has promised to do, and what our relationship should be with Him. Consider Jesus Christ. It says, He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the apostle. The word apostle there means a messenger. It's the only time that this title is applied to Jesus in the whole of Scripture. Directly. But the fact of it is throughout Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God sent His Son into the world. Jesus came into this world to do the Father's will. He came into this world to tell us about the Father. That's all the work of one who is sent. That's an apostle. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past to the prophets, has spoken to us in these latter days by his son that's why we're memorizing that so we know who he is he is the apostle of our profession he is the one who left heaven and came to earth and brought the message of salvation to earth that message which we profess 
Now that's an interesting word too. It means to identify with. It means to identify with. Do you identify with the message of Jesus Christ? That you are a sinner? That you were an enemy of God, but you can be saved by God's grace? Do you identify with that? Do you willingly identify that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, who lived on this earth in human form, who died on the cross, who paid my penalty, who paid your penalty for sin, who rose from the dead, who ascended back into heaven, and who has promised and will to come again? To receive his own to himself. Do you identify with, do you profess that message? When we say that Jesus is Lord, when we say that Jesus is my Savior, that's the short version of the whole package deal. <laughs> and it better be reality. People can say Jesus is Lord but you know whether or not they're speaking the truth by their life, don't you? People can say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. And if their life looks like what Jesus taught, if there's some agreement between their life and the Scriptures, if they're, they're growing in their faith and their understanding and they're reflecting more and more the image of Christ in their lives, we can have some assurance then, can't we, that, yeah, what they've said is true. But if they say, oh, yeah, I believe Jesus is God. I made, yeah, I made a profession of faith when I was like eight. And you look at the last 40 years of their lives and they don't look anything like Christ. Guess what? <laughs> They're not. Whatever they did at seven or six or eight or 15 and and there's, there's no fruit, there's no evidence, there's nothing there, guess what? There's nothing there. It's not rocket science. It's just evidence. He is the profession of our faith. We profess Jesus Christ, and it's the whole package about Him, which includes the change that He affects in our lives. And he is the high priest. The high priest had a job every year. He had to go into the holy place and offer blood. He had to go into the holiest place, the holy of holies, and sprinkle blood there on the altar, on the mercy seat. The high priest could only go in one day a year. And then he had to take an offering of blood first for himself and then for the people. And so he was representing the people and their sin before God. And he was placing there that, that blood sacrifice, which in that economy temporarily took away the guilt of their sin. But guess what? That high priest turned around went out the door the people went out from the tabernacle or out from the temple and they sinned again. And so every year, every year, every year, it all had to be repeated. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. But the high priest 
had to fulfill that responsibility because he represented the people before Almighty God and he represented God before the people as God would, would, would teach him and speak to him and so forth. He would go out and he would give the word to the people. Jesus is the high priest. He's made a sacrifice. We're going to discover as we work our way through Hebrews, this is just a little insight in the beginning, but, but he offered his own blood in the heavenly tabernacle, not made with hands, the one that's eternal in the heavens. A far better sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice, and a sacrifice that did not include the one who made the sacrifice because he himself, Jesus, was without sin he needed no sacrifice. He is the great, eternal, perfect high priest who represents us before Almighty God. Absolutely, amen. That is our hope. That is our salvation. That is our joy. Consider him. Think about him. Think about what he has done. Notice it says in verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him. That him is God the Father. Jesus, the, the apostle and the high priest of our profession, or of our confession, was faithful to Almighty God. Everything the Father required of him, Jesus fulfilled. Everything. Absolute obedience, even to the point of death. And Jesus fulfilled it all, and he did it on your behalf and on my behalf. Was Moses faithful in absolutely everything? Almost. There was one occasion, wasn't there, where God said to Moses, Now Moses, you go up there and you speak to the rock, and it will yield water. And here's the humanity of Moses. He had been leading this ragtag, rebellious bunch of two and a half to three million people around, and he had had it up to here. And he stands there by the rock, and he reads the riot act to them. He dresses them down, and he says, all right, God's going to provide. And he turns, and he takes the staff in his hand, and he strikes the rock. Nothing happened. He struck it again, and God in his mercy and grace, in spite of Moses' failure at this moment, provides water. But Moses damaged a picture that God was wanting to give to his people, that the Messiah would only be struck once. See, Moses had done that back before. There was a time when God brought them to a rock and Moses was told to strike the rock and he struck the rock and water came out. This time he was told to speak to the rock. But he messed up the picture. And he never got to enter the promised land because of it. Jesus was faithful in absolutely every tiny, tiny, tiny detail absolutely faithful 
this, there's even a different word here. In verse 5, look down here, it says, Moses was indeed faithful in all his house as a servant. You know, there are seven, I didn't realize this before, but there are seven words for servant in the Greek language. One of them we know well, it's the word diakonos, we get the word deacon from, and they're the guys that serve the congregation, and they, they try to minister to the material and spiritual needs of the body of believers. We're familiar with that word. The other word you've probably heard, one of the other words you've probably heard men mentioned many times, it's the word doulos, and it means the absolute lowest level bound s slave. But then there's some other words in there. I'm not going to go into all those. But there is one word, therapon, which means the highest level, the most trusted household or individual servant. We might say that this describes the gentleman's gentleman, you know? None of us, especially not being British, you know, we don't understand what it means to be aristocracy and to have somebody who's sort of the head butler, the, you know, the guy that takes care of everything. But that's the term that's used here for Moses. The most trusted. The one that maybe the master would sometimes take into his confidence and would entrust personal matters to and, and give this servant the opportunity to represent the master directly in affairs. I mean, this is, this is the opposite end of the doulos, the, the one who's the bond slave. This is the guy that's right up here who's like second in the house, but he's not the master. He's not the son. He's a trusted, loyal, faithful servant. That's Moses. But notice, in contrast, is Jesus. Verse 3, for this one has been counted more worthy of more, or counted more, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? We had opportunity early in the year to go out and see uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's home uh, there, uh, Living Water. Beautiful place. I'd never seen it before. We walked around, looked inside, you know, and all over the grounds. Beautiful, lovely, absolutely lovely. But it was the architect that was featured in the gift shop. I mean, there were pictures of the house, but all of them pointed to the genius of the architect. It was preserved, the house was being preserved, yes, because it was beautiful, but because it reflected the genius of the architect. And so it is here with Christ. Moses was faithful in that whole system of the tabernacle, in setting it up and establishing the priesthood, and all of those things were pointing not to Moses, but to the one who designed them, to God, to the one who was leading the people out of bondage. Jesus Christ comes, and he's going to establish his house, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the, the group of true believers. And Jesus is 
the Son in the house of the Father, and He is the Son even over His own house. And so we don't get all excited about the things that point to the architect, the designer, the builder. You get excited about the architect, the designer, the builder, the genius from which all of this flows. We don't get excited about the things that point, the signposts that point to salvation. You get excited about the one who is salvation, and that's Jesus Christ himself. He is our life. He is our Savior. He is the one who redeems us. He is faithful. Christ, verse 6, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Remember, the writer of Hebrews here is addressing a group of Jewish people who are struggling, wrestling with this, is Jesus the Son of God? Is He the Messiah? What was it that John the Baptist said years before this was ever written? at the beginning of Christ's ministry, some of his followers had gone to see Jesus. In fact, John had sent them. And he sent them with a question. John was in prison. He'd been hearing about Jesus. And he sends his disciples and he says, now you ask him, are you the one we look for? Or should we look for another? John was wrestling with this. And he's not the only one who ever wrestled with that question. Now John came to an answer, didn't he? He understood, he knew that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Jesus said to, his, to John's uh, emissaries there, he says, well, you know, you go back and you tell John what you've seen, what you've heard, and tell him that blessed is he who doesn't doubt but believes. Same message here, I think, to these Hebrew readers Verse 6, Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, don't give up on what you have learned. Don't give up on your consideration of who Jesus is. Go on to faith. Go on and receive what God has revealed to you. That's why we get to verse 8. Or verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. God said to the nation of Israel, after giving them the law at Mount Sinai, and they had built the tabernacle and everything, they spent about two years there in Sinai, God moves them up north, to the very threshold of the southern border of the promised land, and he says, go in, and they say, we're not going. Oh, man. <laughs> right there they were on the very threshold of blessing, and they refused to go. Some of you have been on the threshold of blessing. The Spirit of God has been working in your heart and you know that you need to trust Christ. 
and you can see the blessing that that would be. You can see the joy that it would be because you've seen it in other people. You've, you've seen other folks come to Christ and you've seen their lives transformed and, and you've seen the power of God at work in them and yet you stand there on the threshold and you do not move forward by faith. That's a dangerous place to be. Notice what it says. Do not harden your hearts as in the, day, in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That is serious business, folks. To be that close to salvation, that close to the blessing of God, and refuse it, and then to have God close the door. Scripture says that there will be lots of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth folks wanting to get in but the day of grace passed remember earlier in Hebrews we talked about drifting away and how there you are at the port at the harbor and you just drift you drift you drift slowly imperceptibly until all of a sudden the day of salvation has passed Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're listening by way of YouTube or whatever, and you sense that Spirit of God at work in your heart drawing you to Jesus Christ, do not harden your heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and about halfway through that process, Scripture makes a little change, and it says, and God hardened his heart. Don't let that happen to you. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. God is kind. God is loving. But God will not be treated cheaply. And His mercy, though it is limitless, He has determined He will not extend it forever. There is a day of grace. There is a day of salvation. There is a time to turn to God and be saved. And if we fail to do that, there's no hope. So beloved, today, today is the day. Don't let it pass you by. We don't always have a public invitation, but it's always an opportunity for you to come and I'd be delighted to pray with you or any of the folks up here to, to pray with you and uh, answer questions but really it's between you and God to say God I, I am a sinner your words right I'm a sinner I'm rebellious I've not believed in you I've not honored you forgive me receive me as your child and he will 
He will. We don't have to get all cleaned up first. He'll clean whatever needs to be cleaned in time. But you come and you confess your sin and you confess your need for Christ. You confess your need for salvation and God will receive you. Do that today, right where you sit. If you want to come forward when we sing, you're welcome to. We'd be delighted to pray with you. Don't let the day pass. Father, your word is powerful and it is sharp and it cuts right down to where we live. And Father, maybe there's somebody here today that has been on the threshold of salvation for a long, long time. And yet they've never, in their heart, humbled themselves before you and sought your forgiveness. They've never really considered you. But Lord, maybe today your Spirit is working in their heart and they're thinking about this. And Father, I pray that right where they are right now, they would cry out to you for salvation because you will save them. Father, speak to our hearts. May we go from this place transformed by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.